It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. This is David. I'm here with my buddy Chris, as always. Um, back in Memphis with you, Chris. It's been a while. Has been a while. What do you say? Year anniversary? Didn't you find that out? Yeah, today is actually our one year anniversary. The day we're recording is our one year anniversary of our of us recording the first one. And tomorrow, uh, Sunday, what's tomorrow? The eleventh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The eleventh. That will be the one year anniversary of um, our first release. And maybe two years from now, or another year. It's been two years. Maybe we'll know what we're doing by then. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's been a fun year. Uh, Chris and I were, were reminiscing a little bit. We went to lunch with our, uh, our guest today and talking about it on the way back, kind of how this came to be. And uh, it's really uh, it's exceeded my expectations. I've routinely looked at our listener numbers and, you know, we have 66 people in Japan that listen to us. Uh, there's four people in Afghanistan that listen to us. Uh, so uh, we're real big in Afghanistan. All right, man. Uh, I like Kind of like Hasselhoff in Germany. <laughs> uh, but anyway, no, it, it's really cool. We've met a lot of cool people. Uh, we've made a lot of contacts around the country, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's just uh, it's something we enjoy doing, and uh, we hope to continue doing that. I do want to tell everybody before we get into our, uh, our subject of the day to follow us on Twitter at Digital Kill, to like our Facebook page, Digital Kill, the Radio Star Podcast. And uh, follow us on subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Either way, and we're also um, uh, looking at those reviews. So uh, we appreciate uh, the last couple of people that left us reviews on iTunes. And uh, keep doing that. Uh, we will randomly pick some of these people and send them stuff uh, in the mail. So we've had a few of our listeners. I've sent some um, uh, gift cards for uh, downloads, and uh, we've sent people some koozies and things like that. So. You never know. Uh, drop us a review, and hopefully it's five stars. And if it is, we'll uh, we'll probably get in touch with you and thank you, and probably send you a little something. So it has been a couple of weeks since we did our last podcast. Uh, we do apologize for that, but uh, I drove up to Memphis this morning uh, here at Chris's house because we have a, a podcast we've been talking about doing for a couple of months. So uh, Chris, uh, we'll let you introduce our guest. All right. First of all, we decided we've been we, yeah we talked about doing this for a while now. Just our, our favorite guitar players, and I, as I was talking to David, I was like, you know, I got somebody to be really good for this. Somebody who's going to know a whole lot more than we do, and can kind of talk to the technical ability. I've known this guy now for you know, let's just say a long time. If I give the years, it makes me feel too old, which 
is what I am. But anyway, I met this guy back when I was, you know, just what middle school kid, and um, he was a guitar teacher at a music store, and I think he just you, you left the music store. And my parents thought, yes, thought, well, maybe you could just, because I, I connected with this guy more than any of these guitar teachers I'd had before. Maybe you could come over to our house. We'll pay you to come over and give lessons there. And one of my buddies lived in the same neighborhood. So he'd come visit both of us. And, yeah, the guy taught me guitar for a while. And, and don't hold that against him, you know, because, I mean, for my lack of talent, you know, I promise he's the real deal. But uh, Mike and I connected several years down the road after he taught me lessons and yeah, I'm happy to call Mike a really good friend in addition to just being a phenomenal player and that's not me being you know that's not me just trying to say I think he's great because he's he's a friend um, you ask anybody in the city of Memphis and if they don't say he's the best they'll say he's one of the best in the entire city and that's any of these guys that you know went on and had the, the record deals whatever they all will still say Mike was the man and is the man still a great player so Anyway, I'm going to quit rambling. We've got with us my buddy, Mike McDonald. Thanks for coming on, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, whenever we have a new person on our podcast, we like to ask them the same two questions first. What's your earliest recollection of music, and who was the first artist or band that just basically hooked you for life, got you to love music? Easy, man, easy. Kiss. Yeah, Kiss was the first one. I was um, probably got my first Kiss record when I was uh, maybe four Five years old. What album was that? Um, I think it was Kiss Alive. And uh, actually, the way I, um, the way I'd actually come about that, my mom um, used to go visit one of her friends in the neighborhood, um, and she had a young daughter um, who was obviously a Kiss fan. And I was, uh, you know, my mom and her friend would be visiting. You know, we kids would be playing or whatever. And I'd uh, gone and uh, stumbled into her room and found this Kiss record. And I was just like, you know, wow. And she's like, here, let me put it on. You got to listen to it. And after that, it was all over. You know, we you think about people say, you know, it was Hendrix that changed the game. It was, you know, yeah. Eddie Van Halen that changed the game. But how many people that play the guitar that f- from 75 on, th- they basically have your story? You know, yeah. I mean, it's just so many people. We've... Uh, We've been lucky enough. There's some national podcasts that we've gotten to know really well that are they're just diehard Kiss fans. I mean, they live and die on everything Kiss does. I've seen Kiss a couple of times. I like a lot of their songs, but I'm just a, a casual fan. Right. But the fandom for that band is the fact that they have been able to keep so many people hooked right. in that they're still paying you know outrageous amounts of money for any kind of Kiss memorabilia. Right. It's really, it's really fascinating. But I don't know how. I literally, there's a ton of guitar players that I've heard on other podcasts tell the exact same story. I was at my friend's house, and his older brother had Kiss Alive, Man. or my older brother had Kiss Alive. So I mean, that album has. Well, yeah, it's it it a game changer. It was a monumental record, you know. I mean, um, of course, you know, obviously, as the years have passed, you know, they say, well, how live was it really? But you know, at the end of the day, does it really matter? I mean, you know. It was an album that changed things for you, you know. It was an album that actually, you know, hit your heart, right. you know. So, I mean, um, you know, I mean, that record, I mean, not only, obviously, you know, it was, for me, Kiss a great band, but, you know, and the same style as, like, Almond's Live at the Fillmore or um, Peter Frampton, Frampton Live. Kiss Live was just a great sounding live record, just as those record, records were, you know. So, I mean, it's going to go down in history as, you know, 
when you start talking about great live records, whether you're a Kiss fan or not a Kiss fan, you know, I mean, that was just an incredible record. Yeah, always at the top of, you know, live album list right. with uh, like The Who live at Leeds. And, exactly, you know, exactly. Live at the Fillmore by the Almond Brothers. Let me ask you this real quick because a lot of people that are listening to our podcast are going to be interest, interested in this. Uh, recently, Vinnie Vincent has like come out of hiding and done like his first interview in 20 years. Yeah. Now, I don't want to upset anybody that's a Kiss fan that listens to this because I'm, I'm I'm truly not trying to pick a fight or anything. People are salivating over the fact that he has come back, you know, in, into the public forefront and talk about the the albums that he played on. What what's your thought of Vinnie Vincent as a player? Uh, I think yeah, Vinnie's great. I mean, Vinnie's got his own style. You know, I think. Obviously, what he did in Kiss is different than what he did after Kiss. You know, when he had was I think the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Yeah. Um, where you know he wrote a lot of great songs then too, but as far as his playing style for guitar was a lot different than it was in Kiss. I think what he did with Kiss, though, you know it, um, you know it fit for what they wanted. But yeah, you look at oh, is it Lick It Up, Creatures mm-hmm. of the Night? Yeah, the great records, you know. And you also have to remember he was there in a monumental time in Kiss's career when they actually took the makeup off. Right. So you know he was that makes him you know you know a really big part of Kiss. Whether he did one record, two records, you know. So I can imagine Kiss fans are excited, you know. I mean, I mean he was one of the last makeup members, you know. Right. And then he was there, you know, when they transitioned from makeup to non-makeup. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can understand that. Well, talking about transitioning and makeup, I think, uh, <laughs> staying on Vinnie Vincent, I think the makeup's come back on. You know, yeah. I mean, I know it's the music, un, you know, unrelated to music, but man, have you seen the pictures? Have you seen them? Yeah, I've seen them. Um, you know, I don't know, man. I mean... If these is their own, this is, yeah, man, it's kind of know, shocking. I mean, maybe if we were back in the 80s, it you know, probably wouldn't shock anybody, you know? Yeah, I've heard some, apparently there were some KISS fans that were kind of troubled by what they saw, and this guy was like, it's kind of ironic that fans of a band that wear makeup and high heels are upset that somebody's wearing makeup and high High heels. heels. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I guess you just kind of took it from the New York Dolls type look to go into more, you know, real life. Right. I guess maybe that's the the struggle. So, uh, Mike, when did you start playing guitar? Um, well, yeah, that's kind of a tricky question. The first time I actually picked guitar up, I was probably around five or six. Um, my mom had gone out and, uh, was getting me a guitar because, um, I wanted to be Kiss and the music store told her, well, he needs to learn on an acoustic. And of course I was only like six years old. So the acoustic that we ended up getting was bigger than I was, you know? Right. So I remember I used to kind of like roll it into my closet when I was done playing. Um, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't Kiss for me. So after that, I um, I I didn't actually I couldn't gravitate to guitar because it you know I wasn't Ace Frehley or Paul Stanley um, playing this huge jumbo acoustic. Um, so I ended up going and I played drums for a few years. And I used to have a friend that would come over and he had a guitar that actually had one of the um, probably show my age now had one of the amps in the case you know that was all built in. So he just plug it in and. We would, uh, you know, jam on the weekends or whatever, and uh, he would leave it there, you know, when he'd go home, you know, and, you know, so the next time he came over, he's already set up. And uh, I mean, every time he would leave, I'd go up to my bedroom, I'd pick his guitar up, and, you know, I'd practice and play with it. So eventually I picked, I think, uh, by the time I was like 11 years old, I'd gotten my first uh, copy of a Les Paul. Um, it was, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was just a cheap copy of it. And... Uh, 
at that point I started uh, copping all my Ace Frehley licks and um, you know I started getting heavy into people like Randy Rhodes who was a huge huge influence on me um, personally and you know musically um, but yeah so I was probably around 11 years old when I actually picked it up and got serious about it quick question about Randy Rhodes I, I texted us to Chris the other day had he not died do you think he'd be held in higher esteem than Eddie Van Halen right now? Or would they be like 1, at one and 1A? One or... Well, you know, it's kind of like we were saying earlier. I mean, music is all subjective to taste, you know? Um, you know, what I might think is amazing, Chris might think is just okay. You know, and, you know, vice versa. I mean, so, would he be held in higher esteem? I don't, I don't know. I mean, because, you know, a lot of people have a lot of respect for Eddie. You know, and of course, Eddie's been through a lot of things too, but... Um, it doesn't take anything away from his talent. And I think Randy would have been the same thing. You know, I mean, Randy, um, Randy was this huge talent. And I think that it's unfortunate that, you know, we didn't get to see him, you know, beyond the age of 25 to, you know, grow and, you know, see what, you know, he was going to become with all of that. I mean, because he had a lot to offer. Well, I think eight fingers on a fretboard maybe would have, might would have kept Eddie above in everybody's eyes just because he was the first to, at least the first that we saw do that you know and for that I mean anytime you see anybody that comes out and creates something new they're always going to be a little bit of a level above because they were that first to market you know they're the first ones to come out that way not saying it would make him a better player but maybe if there's a difference between the two if Randy had to live long enough which of course like everybody at this table wish he had of right so at what age do you did you realize I'm really good. Like uh, I don't think I, he's realized I, that yet. I don't think I've realized that no, yet. I've, I've heard you playing. I mean, at what age did you realize, like, hey, this isn't just me strumming G, C, and D. Like, I, I've, I've, I'm on to something here. Um, you know, I don't know. I think after the first probably couple of years that I was playing, I, um, you know, I found it was, like, easier, you know, like, I would go off and, you know, like, if you spent the summer at your grandparents or, you know, if you went and, you know, you know, like whatever you did with your family, you know, instead of me going out and, you know, playing sports or anything like that, I usually was in my bedroom practicing a lot. And I had like, you know, all my records or CDs or, you know, whatever, you know, that I would just cop off of. And uh, I don't know, I just real, it was, um, that kind of transitioned quick for me. I mean, to where, you know, I was picking up stuff by ear, you know, like Randy stuff and Ace's stuff and, you know, of course, a lot of other guitar players in that genre. Um... You know, to where I'd come back, you know, and some of my friends would be like, man, I just learned this. And they said, what have you learned? I'm like, well, I learned this and that. And it was, you know, so, I mean, it was kind of, um, it, it was kind of one of those things that you just, when you saw yourself progressing, then you kind of thought, hey, I can do this, you know. It, but I still, like Chris said, though, I'm still trying to figure out if I can really do it. But <laughs> And you hit the club scenes at a really early age, too, right? So yeah, I was... Bands. I was in the clubs probably about 14 or 15 years old. Well, see, there's kind of the indicator right there. When you ask, when did he know he's good? He may not know that now, but when you're starting to get in at 14 years old, you probably can play. Kind of like our buddies in Under the Radar. (laughs) And then look at our local boy, you know, Zach Myers, who's doing well for himself. You know, same thing. I mean, he's playing 13, 14 years old. Right. You know, those are the guys that just their talent is a little bit above everybody else. So, who would you say, you know, if you had to pick two or three people that were the biggest influence on your on your playing, who, who, would, who would those two or three people be? Um, the top two, um, Sean Lane and Randy Rhodes. 
And if you're listening to this and you don't know who Sean Lane is, and, and it's sad, uh, you probably aren't going to know who Sean Lane is, go watch him on YouTube. Um, he died way too young. Um, you know, I th- I, that was always the thing I heard growing up. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest player. Yeah. And, and like we were saying at lunch, it was a lot more than just playing playing fast. Yeah, Sean, had, you know, I mean, that was probably what a lot of people, you know, gravitated to first because, you know, you didn't really see somebody play that, you know, that fast. Um, but Sean was really the best fast good guitar player. I think Vernon Reed from uh, Living Color actually said the same thing. Um, there's a lot of guitar players out there just blazing fast, you know, and that's great. But Sean, um, his musicality was just so high. I mean, he was just, I mean, ingenious in his playing. And the fact that he could execute, you know, lines and um, things at that speed is just unbelievable. You know, I mean, he's great, just incredible player. But I mean, at the same time, though, he's an incredible person. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, he's talking about him being an incredible person for those listening. Uh, Sean Lane, if you know who he is, whatever, you know how great a player he was. Well, he taught Mike. Yeah. So, so Mike Mike took lessons from the guy. And it, we were talking at lunch. We went to lunch earlier. We were just kind of talking over a few things. Was It, it was like Paul Gilbert, I think, said, what would he say? Like, he's the most... Yeah, most terrifying guy of all time. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. I mean, you have, mm-hmm. you know, shredders like Paul Gilbert, like, this guy's a step above, you know, step above us. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, if you look back at, you know, Sean, you know, when he was here, he had probably the biggest cult following around the world. You know, I mean, there were people swapping his tapes, you know, of him playing live, you know, and he was still an unsigned artist. You know, he didn't have any records out. You know, he played on some records, um, but he, uh, he didn't have any records out. He wasn't signed. He was just, you know, a guy that was playing in a cover band here in Memphis but just this incredible talent, you know, that just hadn't had a chance to, you know, really show the world, you know, what he could do other than all of us sitting with, you know, tape recorders recording his gigs, you know, right. and then, you know, swapping them with each other. And then, of course, obviously, you know, that just spreads and spreads and spreads. And then, you know, he gets this huge following. Who are some of the people that he looked up to? Um, Wow, man. Sean was... Um, Sean looked up to a lot of people... But not necessarily guitar players. I know he really liked Holdsworth, Alan Holdsworth. Um, well, see, he's got, wasn't Eddie hugely influenced by him, too? Eddie, um, yeah. Eddie, so. Eddie was influenced by Holdsworth. Matter of fact, I think there was a story where he actually got Holdsworth a record deal, you know, and told him, you know, if, I think if he'd put more of a mainstream record out playing that way, you know, I guess he probably would have done more. But, you know, Holdsworth is Holdsworth, you know, and he did Holdsworth music. Which you know was fusion jazz fusion music, but you know Holdsworth was a, um, a heavy legato player that was heavily influenced by horn players. You know Holdsworth didn't listen to guitar players. Holdsworth listened to horns horn players. You know and learned his lines as if he were playing them as a you know as a saxophone or a trumpet or. But Sean, getting back to Sean, though, Sean was heavily influenced. I think by Holdsworth. I think there was an interview one time where he told somebody yeah, he saw Holdsworth in Memphis, and it just kind of changed his life. Um, but Sean actually went much deeper than that. Sean was influenced by people like um, Charlie Parker, Art Tatum, uh, Chopin. Um, Sean's musical uh, reach was way beyond just you know guitar players and. Um, 
you know, people of modern day music. I mean, he actually went back and Sean, just like I did, studied music, you know, all the way back to as far as you can, you know. I mean, even like I was telling Chris earlier, probably a lot of people never heard of Django Reinhardt. Django Reinhardt was around in the 40s and his family were basically gypsies. Um, But he was playing things, you know, Paul Gilbert speed and he only had two working fingers on his left hand. Wow. (laughs) Uh, That's somebody just born with it. Yeah, yeah, he was you know, a Django Reinhardt, man. If you ever get a chance, check him out, man. He's just amazing. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about uh, some of our favorite guitarists. And since we have a guy here that can, uh, that can really play, uh, when Chris and I talk about ours, we're just going to let uh, Mike kind of give his... Uh, <laughs> tell us how far how wrong we are, yeah, how far either, off we are. <laughs> either tell us how right or wrong and... Uh, Chris thinks I have a few picks that people are going to laugh at, but uh, my boy Mike here has already uh, defended a couple of. He's them. already defended a couple of them and validated them. So uh, anyway, Mike, since you're our guest, uh, let you throw out one of your favorite guitars and tell us what you think about them. Uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, oh man, let's uh, let's start with Randy. I think that would okay. be the one that all of us would know. Yes. So. Um, yeah, Randy. I mean, Randy is, uh, you know, the two records, Blizzard and Diary, you know, everyone would always go back and forth, you know, which one's the best? Um, of course, you got your Blizzard people, and then you got your Diary people. Um, me, personally, I think I was more on the Diary side. Um, listened to some of the things he played, you know, obviously, the solos in, like, Flying High Again, uh, Over the Mountain. Um, of course, the title track, Diary of a Madman. I mean, that's just, to me, it's a masterpiece, you know. Uh, the interlude and in, uh, you can't kill rock and roll i mean uh, you know how soft of a textured song or a composition that was you know this guitar part you know comes in you know his guitar solo is just you know amazing it sounds larger than life randy was good at that randy you know and that's one of the special things about randy randy could be you know very textured very um you know very atmospheric in certain things you know, and then completely flip it on you, and you know, next thing you know, it's like you're just getting punched in the face, you know, with this, this huge wall of, you know, Randy. So. And he was classically trained, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, you know, Randy was still taking. Um. You know, they said that when they were on the tour, you know, which I think the Blizzard and Diary tours kind of ran together. Um, when he was on tour, you know, he was actually taking classical guitar lessons. He would actually every city they would go into, he would actually find a classical guitar teacher and take lessons. And, of course, as the story goes, you know, he ended up giving the lessons more often than actually <laughs> receiving. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, you know, Randy, Randy taught us that, you know, in music, in music there's, there's no room for any ego. Uh, and that you should love being a musician first and that you should never stop learning. And, I mean, Randy, to me, was at the top of his game and he was still, you know, aspiring to learn more and more. You know, the word is, too, talking about the classical influence, that he, there was an end in sight with Ozzy, that he wanted to record classical music. Yeah. Well, you know, and they also said there was, uh, I think, a rumor that he wanted to go back to UCLA, you know, and teach, you know. So, um, I mean, who knows? I mean, what, you know, what directions Randy's life, his life could have taken. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Randy was just, um, you know, a huge influence. That's why I say, you know, the way he approached music, his playing, you know, I mean, he was a master, 
You know, and I mean, it's just, you know, there hasn't been another Randy Rhodes since. And that intro, like you said, that intro on uh, on the song Diary of a Madman. And it's so dark. It's just, it's yeah. it's so cool sounding. But one thing I just ask, this is one of the things I like having you in here for is is one thing that Randy's received a lot of credit for over the years. And I'm hoping you can elaborate on this a little bit. But the, the way that he would double his tracks where I know that people kind of had kind of done yeah. that before, but he's often cited as kind of an innovator on it. So I guess what was different than what was being done before? Well, you know, had. according to Max Norman, you know, he's the guy that produced those records. Um, you know, Randy would not only double, sometimes triple and quadruple the tracks. You know, and back then you didn't have, um, you know, a software where you could go and, you know, just copy from one track, cut and paste, you know, like we do today. You know, Randy had to go back and do that note for note. I mean, so if there was a note that he actually hit and he had to bend... I mean, when he went back and did it again, he had to hit that note and did it exactly the same. timing. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. But, I mean, you know, that's the way the brain works. You know, I mean, you did it once, you can do it again, right? I mean, it sounds easy enough, but it's not always. You know, and then to go back and do it three or four times, you know, that was, yeah. Sounds like uh, Mutt Lang would probably have loved uh, working with him. as all these <laughs> horror stories about working with Mutt Lang when they were reco- Def Leppard was recording hysteria you know them laying down the guitar tracks 200 times before you know they could get it right so yeah well that was definitely going to be a pick for me was going to be randy Rhodes for sure you know i think we all would agree on that and i think since we're going ahead and starting with the big heavy hitters we got rid of we could already talk about one of the most important let's go to what's probably i think going to be maybe the top three most important at this table at least for this table so let's just go ahead go to eddie van halen you know, here's a guy that I think just completely revolutionized. Before that, you had Hendrix, which don't worry, we'll get to him. But you had you had Eddie Van Halen that came in, and I think of those two figures really seem to be the most important, at least for those that don't know the guitar as much. You know, I think that what Hendrix was doing was completely revolutionary, unorthodox. Nobody was doing it before, and then he come Eddie comes in as we mentioned earlier. This, eight fingers on a fretboard. I mean, that's just insanity. We hadn't seen that before. So I think these two guys were just really important in the evolution of guitar playing. And so they, they I think it's good to start with these two guys. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, um, it's that genre, you know, I mean, those, those guys were the, they were the, they were the pinnacle, you know, I mean, they were the top of the game, you know, in that, in that era, you know, I mean, like Chris said, obviously, you know, Hendrix came and changed the game the first time, you know, but he brought the guitar, from what it was in the 60s to what it became in the 70s and, you know, 80s. And, of course, you know, Van Halen comes out in 78, you know, and he basically changes it again. You know, so, um, so I mean, yeah, Eddie was definitely, Eddie was definitely, you know, uh, an influence or, you know, had an effect on modern-day music just as Hendrix did, you know, maybe a decade earlier. Um, Van Halen, though, man, he came out, I mean, he just... Uh, I mean, it's just so much fire in his playing, man. I mean, it's just, you know, incredible. You know, his technique was great. His phrasing was great. You know, the way, um, and, and then, you know, they had good songs. I mean, so not only, you know, you have Van Halen, which, you know, was, you know, a great band with great songs, you know, but here you got Eddie, you know, that's just putting good guitar on top of it, you know what I mean? And it just it made it all just this sound that we hadn't heard before. Yeah, Chris and I have read uh, Greg Renoff's book, Van Halen Rising, which if you're listening and you want a good read it's a great book um 
it talks in there. About, Greg mentions a lot, spends a lot of time talking about Eddie's playing when he was really young, you know, and he's in high school and he's playing cream note for note, um, you know, just this very technical music. And at an early age, he's he's mastered it. And uh, to me, I, he always comes across a little bit as a mad scientist. You know, he built you know that guitar. You know, right. it talks in the book about his all the trouble he had getting an amp to sound correctly he wanted it to be to get his tone but he couldn't get it you know it was too much volume and well he always played at 10 he turned yeah. everything to 10 yeah well and then of course comes in the bariac right you know so he attenuated the volume back down so he could get you know basically what Eddie was shooting for was you know he wanted the the tubes and you know he wanted the amp to saturate you know and you get that when you know that really good tube distortion that really warm sound you know when the you know tubes are hot you know you get your amps cranked you know you get that crank sound but you know obviously when you got a 100 watt marshall you know you want to be able to hear the rest of the band too right so um yeah and came the very act you know so he actually you know brought that in you know none of us had ever heard of anything like that before you know i mean of course you know again that was a little before my time so you know i was um i was reading about it you know after the fact but you know no one before Eddie did that, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, so then of course, you know, you got all these ant manufacturers who come out, you know, like Marshall had theirs, you know, where you can basically, you know, put a power soak on it and attenuate the volume back down, but you still have that cranked amp tone, right? you know. And we read about, you know, talking about this book we read, we read about that very act that, you know, Greg Ronoff played, he paid close attention to that, but for, um, most of us, like, like, David and I and all the other, you know, guys that lack musical ability. Right. Could you explain that a little bit as far as what Eddie was doing? With the very act? Yeah. Well, it was just that. So, um, basically, you know, Eddie played through, you know, 100 watt marshals, you know, and you're basically, you're looking at, you know, four power tubes and probably three preamp tubes, you know. So, you know, you take your marshal, you run everything to 10 and then obviously you know your amp's going to saturate you know it's going to get that big warm sound you know because it sounds like a cranked amp and in a guitar player's ears that's no better sound than an amp that's cranked up you know but um obviously you couldn't play that loud all the time uh so the very act just basically came in to attenuate the volume back so the amp still sounded cranked but you could hear the rest of the band so which uh, i think was a big problem for them early on uh, sounded like Eddie was, you know, Eddie. All Eddie wanted to do is play guitar. I think he'd have been happy if he didn't even have a singer. But you know, the funny <laughs> thing is too, though, when you read that book too, it seems like Eddie, you know, was very. Uh, I think people may think of him now as a little bit more on the cocky side, but he was very, very modest and didn't really. He wasn't very comfortable in his playing ability. Right. You know? I mean, these days pre Van Halen one, right? You know, when he was still better than everybody else in Southern California, he still wasn't real confident in his skills. Well, you know, isn't that the way they said eruption kind of came about? Was um, he was noodling in the studio, and Ted Templeman asked him what that was, and then he said, "I'm just, you know, warming up." He says, it ends up, and of course, it ends up as eruption on Van Halen One, so that's a pretty good warm up. I've joked before, like eruption, maybe maybe the most important minute and a half, two minutes of music in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, well, I'm gonna t- well, I'm gonna throw one out here. I don't think this one's gonna get laughed at, Chris. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite players, a guy that can play, he can shred. He had, you know, he had albums on shrapnel. He can 
he can, you know, he can play blue-eyed soul, uh, can do anything, and nowadays he doesn't play with a pick, and that is uh, Mr. Richie Kotzen. Yeah. Uh, the Poison album that he did, I loved. Uh, yeah. Loved the playing on it. And then uh, his solo albums, he puts he puts out so much solo material that you can't soak any of it in because six months later there's a you know a new album but his stuff is all over the place uh you know kind of bluesy he can play uh you know he can he can tread like the shrapnel guys that you know at 19 he had the, the album on shrapnel but um you know he's taught himself how to play but he doesn't play with a pit now and right. really gets a lot of sound out of a telecaster uh, that's pretty much what he plays it's interesting your thoughts on him um yeah i mean i always loved richie matter of fact i actually he was another one that i got to meet in the late 80s uh, I met him in Atlanta, um, probably right around the same time uh, I met Jason Becker. Um, but Kotzen, man, yeah, Kotzen was a great player, man. Kotzen, um, he, uh, in the beginning, I remember him using a lot of gain in his playing, in his sound. But um, Kotzen was good at, you know, a lot of uh, legato stuff, arpeggios, um, you know, I mean, he was just, you know, you're right, he could shred, you know, he was a really, really great player. And then, of course, you know, he's grown a lot as he's, you know, become, you know, a singer, songwriter, obviously. Um, I think, you know, the band he had right after Shrapnel, I think it was at uh, Motherhead's Family Reunion, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. You know, he came out with some great music there, you know, and it was really, really good. So, um, but a great guy, though, man. Um, just humble, just super cool to hang out with. Um, and then, you know, incredible talent. Well, how, how hard of an adjustment would that be for somebody you know, that's played as long as he has and, and plays the way he does to decide I'm not going to use a picking. I mean, I, he gives a lot of interviews where he's like, you know, this wasn't something that was easy to do. Um, um, well, yeah, but at the same time, you had to think it was something that he wanted to do. Right. So, I mean, um, when you ask how easy, I mean, how bad do you want to do it? Right. You know, so um, it's really just kind of like learning guitar. You know, if you want to be a good, you know, a good guitar player, you know, how bad do you want to be a good guitar player? You know? Right. Um, it's like with anything else, you put in the time, you put in the, you know, the hours practicing, you know, and, you know, I mean, but I'm sure that would be a pretty big transition. Um, but you got to remember Jeff Beck did that too. Right. Um, Beck doesn't really play with a pick, you know. How how much harder is it to play without a pick versus with the pick when it comes to getting the right sound? Because we talked earlier, the Black Crows are my favorite band, and, you know, a local boy here... Luther Dickinson right. was in the Crows, but he doesn't play with a pick. And I love Luther Dickinson's playing, but he didn't mesh with the Crows with, you know, playing without a pick. The solos didn't, they lacked some of the, the bite, I guess you could say. Well, you don't have that pick attack on the string. But it's forceful. Well, but. yeah, I mean, you you know, that depending on your tone, you know, obviously playing with a pick versus fingers, the pick is going to have a lot more attack, you know, so your notes... Will probably come off a, a lot more clear than say you know if I'm playing with my fingers, then I might still be able to sound the note, and I still might be able to you know sustain the note same as I could with a pick. But that initial attack you know on the note, you don't hear the pick you know. And a lot of times you got to think the pick is kind of the percussive part of playing guitar. So you know the pick is more the rhythmic you know when you when you strike the strings with your pick you know it's obviously the clarity of a pick is different than it is with your fingers so um i mean it is a big difference but there again though i mean it's what kind of style of playing are you doing i mean a guy that's playing with his fingers is not going to be doing 
you know, Randy Rose licks. Right. You know, but he could be playing Jeff Beck licks, you know. Right. So, I mean, so, equally, you know, amazing. So, well, who's another uh, one of your favorite guitar players? One of my favorites. Um, well, of course, I already said Sean, but um, Sean's kind of. Um, and Sean's kind of a probably a more difficult subject to go over, you know, because he's um he um you know his musicality is different and his popularity is probably not quite you know what a lot of the other guys are. Um, you know, I listened to Eddie too. I was not as big into Eddie as I was Randy. Uh, Randy was like the pinnacle for me. Um, and then of course you know guys like uh, I guess later on Paul Gilbert was probably a big. You know, influence for me uh, when Street Lethal came out, that was uh, mind blowing to say the least. So uh, I spent a lot of time trying to learn Paul Gilbert licks, a lot of hours. Was he the first one to put the drill to guitar? Um, or did he or did Eddie, did Eddie copy him on that? Or yeah, I kind of think Gilbert beat him to the punch on that one. That's what I that's what I thought. You know, their their drummer just died like two days ago, Pat Torpy. Really? Yeah, yeah. had Parkinson's disease. Yeah, that's terrible. Fifty nine. Um, they're, that, that's an, they're an interesting band. Me and Chris and, and our buddy Caton, who's been on the show a few times, have just a group text where we talk. And, um, There's all, a lot of question on yeah, my list. Yeah. I, a lot of question. Mr. Big is interesting for me. Sonically, I loved him. I, I, Eric Martin's voice, for whatever reason, I just never could get into that. But, I mean, they're all such well-respected players. Well, you know, Eric Martin, he was a real soulful singer. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if he was singing that style of music before Mr. Big. I don't really remember. But, um, you know, it was different than the you know, normal singers that you had out at that time, you know, in the 80s. Uh, Eric Martin was not like your heavy metal screamer, you know. And so that was a little different. And that was probably why, you know, Mr. Big was uh, had a little different direction, I guess, in their music than, you know, a lot of bands around that era. And I liked a lot of that music, man. I thought he sounded really good, especially on songs like, like Green Tinted Sixties Mind. Oh yeah, you know? I, mean, I think Aaron Martin, Aaron Martin sounded really good. So I actually, I mean, I understand. I do understand why he didn't really, he didn't connect to that, to that to the voice. I, I liked it, you know. Yeah. And, and I think Paul Gilbert is incredible, amazing. You know that that Racer X, that first live album they did oh, with yeah. with Boulay, and we've talked about, yeah. we've talked about. Um, John Crabbe, you know, a lot in the past, and we talk about the Scream, and you know, Boulay, you know, his counterpart was on the Scream record. And, well, and, uh, both and, of those guys, man, are just, and Mike was just telling us at lunch. Those guys, correct me if I'm wrong, they came to Memphis and took a lesson from uh, Sean Lane. Yeah, that's what you know. That's what you know. It was you know back around that time, everyone was saying, yeah, yeah they actually came into Memphis and met with Sean, and you know, sat down with him, and I mean, but you know, Sean was one of those guys that you know. Anybody's going to learn from Sean, you know. I'm going to go with one that we all will be familiar with at the table. And uh, a guy who um, just, you talk about being impressive with the way that he was dealt a rough hand. I mean, no pun intended. But um, Tommy Omi. Oh, yeah. You know, with what he was able to do. But, I mean, if, he, if, you know, if you know rock music, you know metal, you're listening to us, you know the story. You know, but... If you by some chance don't, when he was working in some factory, you know, early early on before Sabbath, some kind of machine cut it was the fingertips of the cut his fingertips off on his left playing hand, 
and well, it'd be right clean hand. He plays mm-hmm. left-handed. So on his right hand, cut the fingertips off, and he somehow devised some kind of um, out of wax some some fingertips, false fingertips for himself. And what the guy went on to do in Sabbath is just insane. And I'm not putting him on there just because he overcame odds, but man, the guy's. He's known as the Riff Master exactly. for a reason. Well, man, that's exactly the term I was going to use, Riff Master, man. I mean, if without Tony Omi writing some of those riffs, dude, we'd have never got a lot of the songs that we got after Sabbath, you know? Um, you know, after we were talking, I actually went and listened to some Sabbath last night. Because, um, you know, my buddies, we used to, you know, we get to hang out. I mean, some of my buddies are big Sabbath heads, as, as am I. Um, you know, and we could take Sabotage, you know, front to back. Oh, what a great record. You know, amazing, oh, right? Man. So, I mean, you know, and you listen to his playing on that, man. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, riffs like Hole in the Sky and Symptom of the Universe and, you know, but then, you know, you look at, you know, some of the textures thing, things he does, like, you know, I think, was it Sabbath Bloody Sabbath that, or was it a Sabotage that had fluff on it, mm-hmm. you know? It's completely different from what you know a Tony Iommi riff to be, but I mean, I mean, Chris is right. I mean... Take away, you know, whether anything happened to his hands or not. I mean, the guy just came back and was just, you know, incredible player, incredible, uh, you know, songwriter, you know. And again, you know, you talk about players that change the game. I mean, when it comes to writing riffs, you know, just as Eddie did it, you know, for guitar period, you know, probably you could say Tony Omi in some respect did that for writing riffs. Yeah, exactly. You took the words out of my mouth. That's what I was going to say. When he's to riff writing what Eddie is, two-hand tapping and, exactly, you know, I've heard people joke that guy probably writes riffs in his sleep that other people would kill for. <laughs> yeah, probably and some, and some so. of those albums too. And I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was uh, it's on, it's on uh, Masters Reality. Just some of the the instrumentals that he'd come up with. Some of those beautiful compositions in the in the mid in the middle of this metal record. Right. Which is just I love that. So I'm going to go with a, a duo here, and uh, Chris thought I was going to get laughed at on this one, but I don't think I am. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that it was going to be sold as a package deal. Though. Yeah, Do it's a well. package deal. Uh, your kind of thoughts on Mark Ford and Rich Robinson? Great, man. Great. I mean, to me, that's the sound of the Black Rose, is that team there. I know that Mark wasn't the original guitar player. Um, but, you know, when they came out with uh, Southern Harmony and, you know, of course, obviously the great record, the first record was a great record, too. But um, I thought the second record kind of took it to the next level, you know, and that's when they brought Mark in. And then, of course, obviously, after that, for me, and I know, you know, some people may, you know, it's obviously, you know, again, music was his taste, you know. Um, I thought of Morica. What he did on that, too, was amazing. So, um, great, man. I think Rich was probably a great songwriter, you know, Rich. Um, without him, you know, a lot of those Black Crow songs that we like and love so much, you know, we would have never gotten. Right, and it's interesting because Mark is such a good... He's such a good live player. I mean, he's right. he's sloppy enough that it's 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 effective. Uh, you know, with his kind of his touch and his and his feel. Well, yeah, I mean, kind of like um, which I mean, you know, totally different. But I mean, go back and you know, look at Jimmy Page. You know, when you talk about sloppy, you know, and everyone used to say that Page was you know the you know the sloppy guitar player. But you know, when you li- listen to it in the context of Led Zeppelin, you know, it's incredible. You know, and and the same respect to Mark. You know, it's what he did in the Black Crows. You know, he had that style of playing that it doesn't have to be technically proficient, but it fits the Crows. Right, because we we were talking earlier. It's your your opinion on it has to do with how it makes you feel. 
yeah, you know, exactly. and you know, there's there's people that Chris may love that are you know extremely te- technically gifted and you know can play a million notes a minute and and that moves him and then somebody else it's the you know the people that play I I think I I'll just throw him out there a guy that I think does not get enough credit for what he does not do that's Mike Campbell Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers oh yeah. Yeah, he can play. There's just a gifted songwriter. Yeah, but I mean, he can, you know, he can he can play a ten or twenty note solo, and that's it, and it makes the song. Yeah, but he 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 also doesn't do a lot of soloing. Right, but that's just the you know that's the thing though. I mean, you know, that's the beauty of music is that you know whether you're having a good day, a bad day, you're in a great mood, you're in a bad mood, or you're sad, you're happy, whatever. You know, music is. Music is like, for us, you know, the thing that we go to to either make us feel better or to we need to go mellow out or whatever, you know. And, you know, music is is just, you know, I mean, being a fan, first and foremost, even more so than being a musician, you know, is the songs obviously is where all your content is. You know, that's where, you know, that's, you know, what actually takes us to, you know, man I'm having a great day I want to listen to this record or you know man I just my girlfriend just left me so I'm going to go put this record on you know um, you know music is just what speaks to our heart you know and it's what we love and that's what we kind of gravitate to you know I mean in daily life you know just to kind of you know get through I mean that's why we're fans you know? right and for guitar players you know for this particular discussion you know being able to play the parts that fit inside that context you know that's that's the guys that are great. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, they're bluesy, if they're fast, if they're technical, if they're sloppy. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they played the part, it fit the song, and made the song that much better. Right. Like, you put Eddie Van Halen in Metallica, they may sound awful. Right. Or the Black Rose. Right. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. Well, since, since we're kind of hitting all the fundamentals of, like, what's how rock guitar, how it's evolved and all, one thing I kind of want to touch on is just the... Um, the dual guitar approach. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of these solo guys. We, we haven't got to Hendrix yet, which we will. we got Hendrix. You, you've got Randy Rhodes. You've, you've got, you know, Richie Cotts and uh, all these guys, Tom, Tony Omi. But I think the guys, of course, that are often credited, and the guy, they're often credited this way, but the guys who really kind of came out with that dual lead player, Thin Lizzy. And, and I didn't want to just say, instead of naming just one guy, just say Thin Lizzy. Now, of course, within Thin Lizzy, you've got Gore, you know, you've got um, Scott Gorm. Yeah, Scott Gorm, who's the staple. You got Brian Robertson played with him on all the really the big hit records. But then Black Rose, you have uh, Gary Moore, which I know Mike's a big fan of. He can speak to in a minute. And then the last record, you had John Sykes. And I'm already I'm leaving out a couple of guys. Stony White. Uh, there, there's another one. I'm, I'm Snowy White. Snowy White. That was on the first couple of records. There's another guy. I think it's Eric Bell. I want to say. But anyway, it's really the main ones would just be that Gary Moore, you know, Scott Gorham, Brian Robertson, and then um, you know, of course, John Sykes. Throw him in there as well. But well, all those players. Gorham was there for most of the time when some of these other guys were in and out, wasn't he? Gorham has been there through, I believe he came on in Nightlife, if I'm not mistaken, which was when they first kind of went to as, as a five-piece, and then he was in through the entire rest of it. So, yeah, all those records, whether it be, you know, Jailbreak or, or Fighting, Bad Reputation, all the way to the end, it's Gorham and, 
still to this day Goran playing in Black Star Riders. Right. But I know just the way that they did it, man. That that twin attack, you know. And I, and you may I've heard uh, I heard James Hetfield talk about it before. He said what really influenced him and Kurt as two guitar players, then Lizzie. He's like, that's the band that influenced them. And I guess if you think about it, there really weren't a lot of bands doing that. And and what came after that, and we'll get to some of these bands coming on, but you have your Judas Priest, you have your Iron Maiden, but before that, who was there? You know, you, you have what Eddie did for Leeds, as we said, what Omi did for for just the riffs, then Lizzie, I think they deserve the credit for what they did for that dual guitar attack. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, that's hitting the nail on the head, you know, I mean... And not only that, uh, but, you know, Thin Lizzy had great guitar players, you know. I mean, um, Sykes' playing ability is obviously undeniable. Um, Gary Moore, same thing, you know. I mean, I've heard Gary Moore blister, you know, uh, you know, alternate pick lines, you know, in the early 80s to, you know, going back, you know, later in the later 80s playing, you know, more of a blues style. Um, but the thing about Gary Moore, though, man, was that he was always so raw, you know, and his playing was just always so in your face that, I mean, he's just, he was a monster, man. Just well, a great player. Talk to us about the difficulty of when you have a twin guitar attack and you're, you're playing live and you're doing those solos note for note with somebody else. How, how challenging is that? Um, well, to be honest, I don't know. I've never done it, <laughs> but, um, I would imagine, you know, it's it's pretty difficult. But, I mean, it's it's chemistry, just like, you know, the members of your band. You know, and which obviously the two guitar players are members of your band. But um, the the way their playing styles, you know, obviously mesh together. You know, where, you know which most, like he named out, you know, Priest, Maiden, and obviously Thin Lizzy too. You know, all the guitar players complemented one another there. You know, I mean, they, um, they mesh really well together and they fit the sound of Thin Lizzy. Um... So, I mean, how difficult, you know, it's probably not as easy as, you know, just one guy doing it, especially, say, if they're running unison lines or, you know, if there's a certain uh, harmony thing line that they're doing. I mean, I'm sure, you know, that takes rehearsal just like in rehearsing the songs. Um, but, I mean, how cool is it, you know, just to have, you know, just have two guitars doing that. You know, speaking on the technical aspect, look at Bruce Boulier and Paul Gilbert. Yeah. You know, definitely. those are two guys that, you know... Took like the twin guitar thing, you know, where you know you might be playing eighth notes, sixteenth notes, you know, they took it and ran it up to thirty second notes and played that in unison lines together. Friedman and Becker. Friedman and Becker again, you know, uh, just two incredible players. Yeah, another kind of pioneer of the twin guitar type would have been Leonard Skinner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Different style of music, but still they. Man, but incredible players. Yeah, yeah, they are good. I mean, absolutely incredible players, and you can listen to you know. There was a lot of guys, you know, 80s players that would go back and they would talk about, you know, they learned a lot of their riffs from the guys in Skinner, you know. I mean, those dudes, they weren't kidding, man. They were, they, they came to play. It's very serious about their crowd. And we do need to put together some kind of a playlist, but you know, to where you can post. But I will yeah. say, if you're wanting to hear Thin Lizzy playing, and this would be one, this would be a song that has Gorham and uh, Gary Moore on it. Listen to, to Rosen Dub off of Black Love. It's the last song. It's an old traditional Irish song. It's about seven, eight minutes long. And about the last three, four minutes of it is just soloing. And it is insane. It's beautiful, beautiful playing, too. 
let me throw a guy out out there to you that's not doesn't fit in any of these genres that we've talked about, but often hailed as a tremendous guitar player that didn't necessarily show it off a lot. What are your thoughts on Prince? Prince, oh my God, man. Um, Prince was just, uh, I mean, I mean, everyone says he's a musical genius. Uh, I can't really just look at Prince as a guitar player, man. I mean, that's I think that would be discrediting him. I mean, he uh, Prince is. Um, I mean, he's a musician that, you know, at the forefront that's, you know, beyond most. Um, his songwriting, the his ability to play different instruments, you know. I mean, Prince, um, you know, I mean, take away, you know, all the flash, the clothes, the hair, the whatever, you know. I mean, just look at his music, you know. I mean, it's just, you know, his playing. And, I mean, and on those records, you know, he played, you know, all those instruments, you know, and he... I mean, he just, um, you know, Prince, I mean, it's, it's almost, you can't really explain it. I mean, you know, he, um, you know, it's just incredible. But getting to his guitar playing, though, um, yeah, Prince, I mean, he was a good, I mean, a solid guitar player. I mean, he's just not one of those guys that you would probably go back and say, you know, man, listen to all these licks that... Prince played because I mean his music was so incredible. Right. Maybe he was probably capable of. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that Prince was more than capable of doing things that we would never heard him do. You know, I mean, yeah, I'd love to been a fly on the wall in a studio. You know, and just to hear some of the things that maybe didn't get recorded, or maybe some of the things that got recorded that never got released. I mean, I'm sure there's there's genius all over some recordings that we may or may not ever. Get to hear, or just have sat there while he's playing. You know, not the stuff. Well, yeah, like, exactly. See, see him practicing guitar because I think that's why he's not really always thought of as guitar players because his right. records are not heavy guitar. Right, they're just not. You know, people always talk about his playing. They talk about the Super Bowl before, or not the Super Bowl before. It's the Hall of Fame, I mean, yeah, where he's doing while my guitar gently weeps and he just yeah. wails. Yeah. But for the most part, we don't have a lot to to look at as his body of work. You know, and we all know he's great. I always thought that interviews that that not the interview that solo that he does at the Hall of Fame is so interesting because he's on stage with Jeff Lynn, Tom Petty Steve Winwood and then uh, God, what's Petty's drummer Steve Ferrone Steve Ferroni or whatever is Petty's what drummer it, who Petty says is the best musician that's ever been in the Heartbreakers um, and I mean you can hard pressed to find more talent on one stage at one time than that and yeah. they're just he stole the show they're just I mean at one point Tom Petty just looks over there and he's just like Shaking his head. Um, who are who are some other kind of left of center guitar players that you like that may not necessarily fit into the hard rock heavy metal um, genre? Oh man, there's so many of them. Um, you know, outside of um, I don't know, man. I grew up studying music, so I mean, uh, classical, jazz, um, blues. Um, who are some of your favorite some of your favorite blues players? Uh, Albert King, uh, Elmore James. Love um, James. Um, Muddy Waters, obviously, you know, they say he created electricity. It mm-hmm. wasn't Ben Franklin. Um, <laughs> those guys, to me, are incredible. I mean, true, you got BB, you know, you got all those guys. I was more of an Albert King kind of guy, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I always loved his plan and just, uh, um, I thought, thought it was great. And then, of course, you know, you have some of the newer guys, um, you know, like Buddy Guy, John Lee Hooker, um, one of my favorites, though, probably that wasn't 
known, I guess, as a guitar player, guitar player was uh, Clarence Gatemouth Brown. Oh, my dad will love you for that. Yeah, I was always uh, a big fan of him, man. And every time that uh, he came to BB's in Memphis, I would always go to see him. What are your, what are your thoughts on Derek Trucks? Derek Trucks, great yeah. player, man. Incredible player. Yeah, I mean, talking about somebody that started out like age 14 or whatever. He's on stage with the Almond Brothers. Yeah. Uh, so I was going to ask, if somebody wanted to ask you about, I was thinking about coming up here because I, I, I despise country music. Like <laughs> yeah, some but, of us do. But everybody says that Vince Gill and Brad Paisley could be... They're awesome. Just could be, if you just change the tone on the guitar, they're, those those solos they're playing, they're just shredding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just showing David right now where I'm making notes as we go along. I put Vince Gill and Brad Paisley on this note, particularly Vince Gill. Yeah. Well, you know, I've seen... Um, and I'm sure, as you know, you guys have, and then a lot of the people that are listening, um, you know, Clapton's Crossroads shows, you know, where Vince Gill's been there. And I mean, you watch some of his playing, man. I mean, it's just, you know, he's incredible, man. Incredible player. I mean, whether it's country and you're not a country fan or not, I mean, you listen long enough, you're going to hear a few things that might not necessarily be the country mold that right. he'll throw in there that's, you know, yeah, there's a, yeah, a great video of that at that festival of him playing Tulsa time, right. Shell Crow and Clapton, and, and I remember that. And Gil's hanging is you know he's hanging with Clapton. You know, oh yeah, Clapton absolutely. Um, well, you know one that that I do want to just I, I got to mention because he he was my uh, where what Ace Frehley was to my <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy Page was to me. You know I I went through the. Uh, I guess like most kids, I went through the obligatory Led Zeppelin phase, and um, I think I remember I was learning some Led Zeppelin yeah, songs. Yeah, a few of them, right? Yeah. About about a half dozen or <laughs> eighty. Um, right. But yeah, you know, it's just uh, he was one of those guys. I mean, it's funny how, and when I say the that obligatory Zeppelin stage, it, it's I have no doubt. Yeah, you know, like Dave, you mentioned local kid, local kids under the radar. You know. And, do you think there's any chance he's not sitting there listening to Zeppelin? Right. Every right. single kid goes through that. You know, it doesn't matter whether it was 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010. Every kid's going to go through that. I firmly believe that. Well, you know, it's important, though, that you keep this music alive. I mean, because, you know, where, you know, kids today might be growing up on, you know, players from the 80s. You know, it's important to go back and say, where did they get it from? You know, um... And then, of course, obviously, you know, where did those guys get it from? Because that's the thing about music, man. It always comes back around, you know. I mean, what might have been popular 10 years ago might not be popular now. But, I mean, eventually some form of it's going to come back around. You know, um, it's just like when I mentioned Django Reinhardt earlier. You know, what the guy could do with two fingers was incredible. You know, well, someone heard that. And, of course, obviously they had four fingers, you know. But, you know, they mimicked that. But you don't always... When someone brings it back around, you don't always get what was originally there, you know. So it's always good to go back and, you know, look at some of the players that influenced some of the people that you like, you know. And Zeppelin is one of those bands, yeah, I mean, that should be part of everyone's musical education. I completely agree. You were talking about him playing, Paige playing kind of sloppy live. My buddy Bobby, who listens to us as a guitar player, said, you know, because, like you said, that he layered so many tracks Right. that he was trying to play a little bit of live. He was trying to try to make it sound a little fuller than, you know, necessarily uh, what it was going to sound like with just one guitar player. They've always been known as a bad live band. I mean, 
I wouldn't know, you know. Well, you know, Seth and Maldi tracked a lot of their stuff, and if you read any of Page's interviews, you know, he was always trying to create that guitar army sound, you know. I mean, he wanted the big guitar sound, and he got it, you know. You take a Telecaster through a Fender, and that was his, you know, his more textured sound. But then, you know, when you get to, you know, the big sound, you know, um, you know, songs you know, like The Ocean and things like that, where it's got the big riff, you know, Les Paul and Marshall, you know, and... You know, his just kind of like Yomi, you know, he wrote some great riffs with the Les Paul and the Marshall, you know, that, you know, that again influenced a lot of, you know, bands after that to write similar riffs, similar songs, you know, but again, you know, there probably being another Led Zeppelin, you know, it's, yeah, I don't see it. Really. So I'm going to throw out one that Chris is going to laugh at. Uh oh. Because every time I mention this band, I get laughed at, but he can just. Be quiet for a second. <laughs> I'll Red, try. Red Beach of Winger. I don't want, no, I don't, I will never knock the musical ability. I don't like the band, but I'll never knock the ability. And I'm talking about every player in that band was top notch. You know, Bo Hill, who produced those albums, I heard recently on a podcast, he said the original, the original quartet of Winger are the most talented musicians I've ever recorded. And he said everybody else is a distant second. Um, but anyway, I've just always I've always liked his. You, know, you pick on Winger all you want to for the you know Beavis and Budhead stuff, or whatever. But his yeah, playing, that was unfortunate. You know, I mean that. I mean, he's know. been in White Snake for a while now. Yeah. You know, uh, Red Beach is a great player. I mean, you know, and Chris had mentioned earlier about you know two handed playing. You know, Red Beach was really strong in that. You know, I mean, as far as some of the lines he could do, two handed lines. I mean. That was, you know, that was one of his signature things that he could do. He's a know? big Ibanez guy, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, I think he had his own signature series. So we haven't asked you this. What, what, like, what? What's your favorite guitar? Uh, Les Paul. Yeah. I mean, of course. Um, one particular version or customs? Yeah, I'm more of the um, ebony fingerboard, um, the '50s rounded neck, uh, the. Real fat neck. Those are probably what I gravitate to now. Um, of course, you know when I was teaching Chris, though, you know I was playing Strat style guitars, you know, and probably more of the uh, shredder style kind of stuff. So I remember the I, pink Charvel. I had a pink Charvel, and then I also had a. Um, That's a cool looking guitar, though. Yeah, yeah, it's it really was cool looking guitar. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it's similar to like uh, the same guitars that Warren D. Martini was playing, uh, George Lynch, uh, those guys. I mean, Jakey Lee, the same Strat style Charvel. Um, that's what that guitar was, and then um, after that, I had a uh, Hammer Californian, which was um, great guitar too. Uh, I think I remember was, that one. That was the one I used to probably bring to lessons all the time. Because I remember I, I used to always think about it because he, he he played that guitar, and you didn't he play. Didn't he tell me he played Mesa Boogie, and, and that made me it yeah. made me think like you're matching identical to what Vernon Reed was playing. I believe. Yeah, I think he was playing I think identical. He had the same thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Um, we skipped around enough as I'm going. We make sure we get through all these people, but doesn't need to. We don't need to dwell, dwell a whole lot on this person because we've already mentioned him several times. At least I have, but we got to mention Hendrix. Yeah, you know? I mean, you got to mention what he did. And I've already talked a little bit, so I'll let Mike talk about him. Well, Hendrix changed the game, man. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, there's probably not a whole lot that we can tell anybody that they don't already really already know about Hendrix. Um, and again, you know, if you ask people, you know, what's your favorite Hendrix? era, track, song, album, whatever, you know, you're going to get, you know, 50 different answers from 50 different people. But obviously, you know, before Hendrix, there was no one that, you know, that 
came even close. And then, you know, Hendrix is playing, songwriting, showmanship. I mean, everything about Hendrix was just, um, you know, the talk about left field. Hendrix was 100% left field, you know. Well, in, in the number of people that he influenced, not only in, in, in rock music, I went to see, I don't know if you've heard of it, the Experience Hendrix. Uh, I actually uh, went to I, that. Yeah, I saw yeah, that. I went to it, it was about a year ago, and it was Zach Wild, Buddy Guy, Johnny Lang, mm-hmm. uh, Dweezil Zappa. Yep. Uh, I'm going to butcher, I can't remember his name, the guy with the sunglasses from Los Lobos. Uh, that plays uh, the you know, left-handed plays the guitar, right. and those guys don't have a whole lot in common, playing-wise. Right. I mean, very different styles, you know. And they're taking their time to go and do this, uh, you know, experience Hendrix thing. Brad Whitford from Aerosmith was there. Right. Um, that's I mean, that's a lot of people that completely different styles that still like you're saying. You go back to who influenced your people into to before you, and to some extent kind of stops with Hendrix to, mm-hmm. a, to a degree now I know he, he took a lot of blues licks and stuff like that but as far as the distortion wah wah pedal and all of that right. I mean, I've often wondered how insane could he sound with today's technology oh yeah I mean well if Hendrix was still around I mean um, there's no telling what we would be listening to right now um, you know I Hendrix, though, yeah, I mean, he did. He his sound was completely different from anyone else, and you know, and you're right in the respect that there were so many people that were influenced by Hendrix who are not remotely have any musical style in common whatsoever. You know, Zach Wild compared to Los Lobos is probably two separate ends of the spectrum, um, but yet, you know, they can both kind of come back together to Hendrix. Um, the only thing I can really say about Hendrix, and I mean, of course, and this is just, you know, my personal take on it is, you know, all of Hendrix's albums to me were masterpieces. I mean, everything on them is just, you know, incredible. Um, but the one that really hit me the hardest was the band of Gypsies, and it wasn't the experience. You know, it was... Um, I met the bass player at the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually saw him. Yeah, I saw him too. He... Um, but, you know, Band of Gypsies, that record to me, and another incredible live record, man, you know, like we were talking at the beginning of the show. Um, the Band of Gypsies is just one of those records that, um, you know, kind of completely changed. You know, I thought I knew Hendrix until I heard that record. And I was like, I don't know anything, you know. And uh, there's one track in particular, if you're not familiar with it, you need to listen to it. It's called Machine Gun. It's the second track off of it. And when Hendrix goes into his solo, he hits this one note. And it's the most amazing note I think has probably ever been put on vinyl. I mean, uh, plastic, whatever. I mean, there's to me, and I can go back and listen to it, and uh, I actually listened to it again last night. You know, there's um, there's no one that's come out and hit a note like that, you know, and it come across, you know, to like whoa, you know. And I mean, so yeah, I mean, if you haven't listened to it in a while, if you have listened to it, if uh, you've never heard it before, definitely take the time out. Turn the TV off. Turn everything else off. Shut the door. Let everyone else be in another room. Listen to Machine Gun and listen to that soul. I mean, that's to me, that's Hendrix. Uh, that's his soul. You know. It's funny you say and when you're talking about go listen to that tonight. I, I know being music fans all at this table, sometimes we hear something, we, we think of something we haven't heard in a while. You kind of get fired up, excited in your head, thinking, oh, man, I can't wait to listen to that later. Yeah. That's the way I'm feeling right now. So yeah. that, that's that's going to be my... Uh, 
I may, I may throw it in on the way. That's going to be what I listen to when we're done, and I got you know, I got a dinner. I got to go to. I think I'm I'm firing that up. You yeah. know, I want to hear that. Well, I promise you, man. That's one track that you know. And, and then, of course, you know, you think about what was going on you know, in the late '60s, early. You know, of course, I think that was recorded in '70. Um, you know, you had you know the war going on at the time. You know, there's a you know a lot of political things going on, and uh, I mean Hendrix, man. I mean he just hammered it. You know, I mean and. Uh, but Machine Gun, man, it's just an incredible track. But that one note, man, I promise you. I mean, I trade all the thirty-second notes in the world, man, for a <laughs> note like that. You know, um, who's somebody else that you? Another one of your influences? Chris well, and I've kind of occupied too much, a lot of. No, time. no, no, no. Hey, man, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested in knowing. Well, what, you, you know, mentioned guys. John Sykes at, at lunch. Yeah, John Sykes. Um, I, I was a big fan of John Sykes. There wasn't really. Um, a whole lot of guitar players, you know, once I had, like, for me, it was like a handful of guys that really did it. Of course, you know, obviously, studying music, I was aware of, like, you know, a lot of different players. Um, but as far as, like, players that, you know, really impacted my life and made, like, a huge, you know, impression on me, I mean, there's probably just a handful of those guys. Uh, Sykes, though, you know, when, of course, Whitesnake, Whitesnake came out, you know, I thought that he had really, you know, he came and showed out. He came to play, you know. So um, Sykes, you know, did uh, his, his playing's always been great. Even on the previous White Snake records, um, and then you know, and what he did in Blue Murder and this, you know, the records after that, you know. I mean, Sykes is always his sound is just you know big. That's what I was gonna say. When I think of John Sykes, I think big and overpowering. Yeah. And it's forgotten by people, or I shouldn't even say forgotten, not known. Really, that he's on the last Thin Lizzy record. You know, people right. forget about that. Yeah, well, you know, and there again, though, too, I mean, John Sykes might not necessarily be the first name that comes up when you start talking about, you know, most popular guitar players, you know. Um, to me, he was, hey, I won't, I don't like using the term underrated because I don't think, I don't think that really applies, but he's not one of those guys that you always hear um, people talk about, you know, a great guitar player. Um, just like, you know, Matthias Jazz or the Scorpions, I thought was a great guitar player. You know, sometimes he doesn't necessarily get you know, the recognition or notoriety that Michael Schenker got or Yuli John Roth got, you know? Um, so, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think he's probably one of those guys, everyone knows he's great, but he doesn't necessarily get as much notoriety out of it. And Schenker was the one I was going to ask you about next because he is yeah. always brought up. I saw your list before we even got started on this. I saw <laughs> Schenker on there. He's, um, he's an idol. To so many like great, great, great players. Well, yeah, even like Matthias Chaps, I just brought, um, I just mentioned, you know, even he was influenced by Michael Schenker, and he ended up replacing him. You know. All right. So if to to lay people like us, I, I was gonna ask you the same question. There's so many people. Kirk Hammett. If well, this is kind of a famous story now, Kirk Hammett. Uh, well, Schenker was gonna be on that metal show, Eddie Trunk's show. Kirk Hammett was living in Florida, I mean, not Florida, Hawaii at the time. Eddie Trunk was like, hey, Kirk, I'm letting you know we're going to have Schenker on here. Kirk, on his own dime, flew from Hawaii to New York just to meet him, and they jammed together. Now, to my ears, when I listened to the UFO stuff that he did, and I listened to the Scorpion stuff that he did, the stuff he did with MSG, to me, to my ears, he kind of sounds like everybody else. But to the people that know they, I mean, Hammett has him up there with like Hendrix and, and, and Eddie Van Halen. Well, yeah, but you gotta remember too. I mean, 
are you listening to Shinker today? Or are you, were you listening to Shinker when it was first out? Right, and he was like 18 or something yeah. at the time. I mean, you know, when Shinker came out and he was playing, you know, Shinker was another guy that, you know, maybe not to the extent of Paul Gilbert, was playing a lot of syncopated, you know, picking line, you know, alternate, alternate picking lines. So Shinker had this sound, you know, that was, that was just monstrous, you know. I mean, incredible player. And at the time, there was not a whole lot of guys like Michael Shinker. So obviously, you know, for Kirk Hammett, you know, probably when it, you know he was listening to those records, all of a sudden Michael Shinker comes along, you know, for him that kind of hits him kind of like a Mark Ford might have hit you right. when Mark Ford came around. Right. So um, yeah, I can totally get that. I totally understand. But yeah, Shinker was incredible. And he's a also. he's a flying V guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let, let's go. I'll keep Mike talking on some because um, let's kind of get to the shredder portion of the show. Uh-oh. Um, Let's go with Jason Becker. Oh my God! I know how much one this of my man favorites. means to you. Yeah, and this is one that is one of the most tragic stories in all of music history, in my opinion. When you think that his career more or less came to halt at what twenty, twenty-one years old. Yeah. You know, if people that don't know, this guy was the future of rock guitar. He had done some, really, some shreds, virtuoso records with Marty Freeman of Megadeth. He had done solo records, Perpetual Burn. Check that one out if you never heard it. This guy was a mad scientist on the guitar, and Mr. David Lee Roth picked him up just like he did all the other great guitarists and found another one to bring on. But this time he went with more of an unknown. And um, it was on that, he recorded that a little ain't enough, was it a little ain't enough record? He recorded that, they went on tour with it, and that's when. ALS came into play. I think he was showing he the early signs of it when they were recording it. And then when, and when he went on tours, when he really got, you know, when it got bad and he had to get out of the band, and um, Jason Beckert is still with us today. But um, Still making music. He is. He is. But, uh, and that's a key point. So he is still making it. You know, with technology today, he's still able to do things, and God bless him. I'm so glad that he is, but... You know, you kind of you kind of wonder, you know, if this awful, awful disease, which I think may be the worst disease that is out there, you know, before that, if that hadn't have taken place, where would he have, have gone? Think what he's done with the disease. What would he have done without it? Yeah. Well, you know, look at what he did before. You know, I mean, his his playing. I mean, Becker. You know, I guess he would be another one. I mean, of course, I mentioned Paul Gilbert earlier. Um, out of the whole shred scene uh you know or that era of genre of plan it was probably gilbert and becker for me um jason becker is um yeah i mean incredible he wasn't necessarily you know gilbert's forte obviously you know alternate picking you know of course you know arpeggios and i mean gilbert you know was a master of all the all those kinds of uh techniques and things um but becker his you know the way he could sweep arpeggios was just different beyond what you know any of the, any of the other guys were doing. I mean, he was just absolutely incredible. Um, his composition was great. I mean, the his phrasing was incredible. Um, Becker was just probably hands down one of my all time favorites. Um, and it just you know, that's probably you know one guitar player that's probably really close to my heart. Um, I don't know if I. Quick story for you guys, if I got time. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. I met Becker in Atlanta. Uh, I think it was 
late 80s, early 90s. Um, but it was right before he got the David Lee Roth gig. But he had just gotten it, but it wasn't where he could come out and say, hey, I'm the new guitar player in David Lee Roth. But, you know, we all, you know, bullied him enough till he finally kind of hinted that, yeah, he got the gig. But um, I got to meet him at AIM in Atlanta, and he was doing a clinic there. And um, we were all hanging out, you know, incredible guy. You know, not just his playing, not just, you know, what we know of him on record, you know, or CDs. Um, just an incredible guy. But I remember, and I'll never forget, man, um, we were at the clinic, and someone had, you know, mentioned that it was snowing outside. You know, I think this was probably, like, early part of the year, so probably around, like, this time of year. And um, I remember we had to stop the clinic, and everybody that was in there, including Jason, we all had to run out to the front of the building because Jason had never seen it snow actually fall before. He's from California, right? Yeah. And, I mean, he'd seen snow before, but he had never actually seen snow fall. So we had completely stopped, and, of course, all of us were out there, you know, playing in the snow and, you know, you know seeing, you know, you know. And, of course, uh, I remember another first he said he had never had crystals before. You know, I guess it's probably one of his first treks to the south. Um, I think in, on the west coast is White Castle. So, um, but yeah, that was um, to be able to actually get to share that with those people that were there, and to share that with him, and him share that with us. You know, I mean, it was just uh, it was really special. And the fact that I was already a big fan, I was actually a bigger fan when I left it, left there because I got to know the kind of person that he was, and actually physically talk to him. We kind of like this a little bit, you know, because he spent so much time with us. You know, I mean, he actually. Um, he was one of those people that he wasn't quite famous famous but I mean he was a musician and a fan you know that loved music loved talking about music you know and regardless of who you were you know whether you were a great musician or you, whether you weren't a musician at all you were just a fan you know I mean he was one of those guys that you know he was just you know he loved music enough that he was ready to talk to whoever you know about it you know I mean just incredible person man that's yeah i mean every time i think about jason you know my heart breaks over again you know um but yeah he's just a incredible talent though man and people that don't know about him they're not familiar like we said earlier he played i mentioned cacophony or i did not mention cacophony. i said freeman becker he played with a band called cacophony which was just dual insane shredding uh, check out his first solo album, Perspective. If you want to hear just <laughs> shredding, it is. Uh, he puts on a clinic on that record. Um, you know, Perpetual Burn and the Perspective. I said Perpetual Burn and the Perspective later on was the album he did. Either Michael Lee Ferkins mm -hmm. helped on that. Check out this guy's work. Um, he's one that I think um, I wish his name were, was more well known because yeah. he, he was he's special. Yeah, there's a song on that Little Ain't Enough album. It's a, a kind of a acoustic song. It's called, I think it's called "Damn Good" mm -hmm. on there, and it's just like him playing this acoustic guitar, and it just sounds so much better than yeah. you know yeah. anybody else. So let's stick on the shredder thing. Let's go with uh, your thoughts on uh, Satriani and Vi. Um, incredible players, obviously. Um, you know, I mean, Vi is. Uh, Vi is another one, obviously a little more left field, you know. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't necessarily conform to what the, you know, what might be standard, you know. I mean, he just, to me, Vi, when he first came out with David Lee Roth, I thought it was way over the top. 
and I thought that was great. You know, I mean, um, his playing, you know, um, what he did on Yankee Rose was just, you know, phenomenal. Um, you know, other two, I was probably a little more, I probably listened to Vi a lot more than Satriani. Um, but Satriani played a lot of great stuff too. You know, um, Surfing with the Alien was an incredible record. You know, and uh, but I think back then, you know, he actually had the uh, one hit from an instrumental record that, you know, was not common back then. Summer right. song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know. Many a commercial. Yeah. So, you know, there's, um, you know, there's something to be said for that, you know, I mean, because he kind of, you know, broke the mold and took instrumental music, you know, to a different area, you know, I mean, to a commercial area, you know, where it wasn't before. Was Vi really the first one to utilize the seven string? Didn't he play like a seven string Ibanez? Um, or am I thinking somebody else? In the beginning, I don't think that. Um, so, say for example, like you know, um, Eat 'Em and Smile. I don't think that it was all six strings. I believe. I think he might have uh, also recorded with like a baritone guitar. Um, I think he used a sitar as well. Um, he used a lot of different things. Uh, to be honest, I think the seven string probably came a little later. Um, like the audience is listening. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, who really was the first to use the seven string? Because you know, you had the Chapman stick, which is you know, I think what is it like twelve or seventeen string? It's like this huge instrument. Um, one of my best friends, his brother, actually picked that up and started learning it. So wow. yeah, so that that's really crazy. If you've never seen that the Chapman stick before, that was that's unbelievable. Yeah, I guess Satriani's equally as famous for teaching Vi and uh, Hammond. Yeah. And I do want to correct myself. I said Summer Song. That's actually Satriani. And then when you said the, the audience is listening, whatever, that would be Vi. So uh, as far as yeah. producers, again, talking about the commercial well, success. Well, I think, was it Surfing with the Alien, I think? Yeah, you had... You, the album that I really... Yeah, Summer Song was the one with the gold cover. That was the yeah. one where he had the like, radio hit. Yeah. I think that was the first was one. Was that on Living in a... Was it Flying in a Blue Dream? Yeah. That was, but, the, but the that one, was the one I had. It's called the Extremist, I think. The gold cover. That's one that had Summer Song on it. it was, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, been a lot of car commercials. Uh, really cool tune. Yeah. Um, we're we're approaching eighty minutes, so um, well, if we stay, if we just stay on Shredders too, one we got to yeah. we have to bring up. And I know he's already been mentioning this. Where we have to mention Ingve. Yeah. Mean, which, by the way, Mike and I saw him not long ago. If you get a chance to see him, go see him. It's like Spinal Tap. I mean, did I oversell that? Before we went to go see him, that's your first time you saw him, right? It was the first time I saw him. You didn't oversell it. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. But it's like yeah. Spinal Tap. I mean, yeah. because just some of the st- the the wall of amps and then stage antics and then I mean the acting band. like a diva. It's just the band set up in the corner. Yeah, it was it was hilarious. I mean, it, that's why I say it's like Spinal Tap. It really was hilarious. But don't let that take away from his playing. Oh, yeah. He he does that because he's able to do it. I mean, how many guitarists can do that? Take a show on the road, but. Just to hear him behind the amps complaining, you know, that he's not coming out until they adjust the lights, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it's it's hilarious. But man, yeah, what a player! You know, yeah, well, you know the rising force and Ingve. Uh, you know, if, yeah, you can't talk shred not talk Ingve because Ingve again, in, in the same sense of Hendrix and Van Halen, you know, Ingve kind of brought this. He took it up to a, the next level. You know, nobody was really playing like Ingve until Ingve came around. I mean, obviously. You know, Eddie was quick, you know, and, you know, played a lot of fast things. Um, you know, I mean, listen to the solo Spanish fly, you know, not only just eruption, but, you know, I mean, Eddie played some pretty quick stuff. Um, 
But then Yngwie came out and, you know, nobody really heard, you know, classical lines, alternate picks like that, sweeping arpeggios. I mean, Yngwie introduced a lot of stuff. Actually, one of my favorites, though, of Yngwie is not Yngwie solo, but was uh, Yngwie with Alcatraz. That, if you've never seen that, a uh, lot of footage of him with that, that's absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, that's, um, you know some of the best Yngwie ever. I mean, to me. I mean, of course, you know, he came out with, you know, Rising Force, Marching Out, Trilogy. You know, all those records that just had some incredible playing. Um, of course, obviously, Rising Out was amazing. And then, of course, uh, Marching Out had some great playing on it, too. Um, but Yngwie just kind of, uh, you know, he brought this style of playing that where he brought it up a notch. We all had to go back and woodshed a few extra hours because, you know, we didn't want to look like slouches, you know, but there would be another, I don't think there's been anybody to come out that sounds like anything. There's and actually a special about the pioneers, pioneers of LA metal. And they basically said exactly what you said when he first came out. They're like, Oh my God, yeah. we've got to, we're basically starting over. Well, and you got to remember too. I mean, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, say Yngwie was influenced by Blackmore, you know, um, and granted, I mean, I'm sure there's probably some influence there, but you have to remember, Ingve grew up, you know, learning, you know, classical violin solos and things like that on guitar, you know, and picking up, you know, compositions like that and copping those instead of, you know, you know, did he cop Blackmore licks? Yeah, probably so. But I mean, you don't learn Richie Blackmore and then end up sounding like Ingve. You know, the Ingve's musical education was way beyond Blackmore or any any guitar player. I mean, it was Niccolo Paganini. And, you know, classical composers like that, Bach, you know, that's what gave us an Yngwie. Let's get your opinion on two of the more well-known thrash players, right. Kirk Hammett and uh, Mustaine. Um, both great players, man. Um, you know, I think for that style of music, that genre, I mean, those guys are, you know, probably the pinnacle of the game, you know, for, you know, for thrash or, you know, metal music you know and that style of playing but um yeah I mean both great players I never really me personally you know I love Metallica um never really you know followed like you know solos and things like that of those but I mean you think about Kirk Hammett's playing and you know like the solos he does within a structure or a rhythmic pattern like Metallica's writing or playing I mean that's incredible for him to be able to play something melodic you know, to be able to play something that's rhythmically structured to fit, you know, a uh, a rhythmic pattern like what they play. Yeah, I mean, he's, um, you know, incredible. Were you a fan of their, like, the Load era when they kind of went on more straight-ahead rock? Yeah, I was a bigger fan probably of, like, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. Um, and, you know, I mean, but the Black Album was great, you know. And I think that's where I think the mainstream first kind of started. I think that's actually where they first got their first commercial hit. Black if was I great, remember. but I think it ended it for them. Yeah, you know, the Black album. Well, I mean, it just it took them from you know being this kind of uh, metal band to a rock band. Well, right? yeah, an underground metal band from San Francisco, you know, to they became a rock and roll band. Really, yeah. if you think about it. Yeah, I think well, a commercially successful rock and roll band. Yeah, right? absolutely. Well, you know, people have said before, you know, like. I heard uh, Scott Ian of Anthrax one time defending them when they say, oh, they sold out. I was like, yeah, they sold out. They sold however many million records. Right. Yeah, they did. 
Um, now, I mean, I think those are great players. I think when you talk about the thrash bands, you got to include Friedman. I think one guy that sometimes is forgotten, not not with players, but people that may not know thrash as well, would be Alex Skolnick, Testament. Mm-hmm. I loved his playing. Loved his playing. Yeah, all great players. Friedman was another one, though, that was kind of left, you know, left field, so to speak. You know, he kind of like Vine in a sense where um, he wouldn't play your standard pentatonic scale, you know, like most people would play it. You know, he would do, you know, he would bend notes outside the actual frame of the pentatonic scale, you know, to just get this more exotic sound. You know, and then, of course, obviously, he listened to, he was influenced by a lot of Japanese music and oriental style music, you know, that, um, that brought like a great facet to his playing, you know, that most people don't do. Yeah, it's interesting you say that he lives in Japan now. Yeah. And he's fully immersed in the culture there. He's actually, I don't know if you know what K-pop is. I said, K- is that what it is? It's like, know. it's basically like teenage Japanese pop music. And he writes and play writes and plays for like a all-female Japanese pop group. Now, I've heard some wow. interviews with him and he's, you know, he speaks the language and very rarely comes to America anymore. But yeah, those, uh, those Megadeth albums he was on. Incredible, man. I mean, I remember some of the solos he played on that. And I just thought, you know... Nobody else but Freeman could fit that over that, you know. Well, I know we're kind of wrapping up. A couple things I just wanted to bring up. Just um, I want to go back to the dual guitar players. I think we we kind of touched on them, but I got to bring up um, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. Yeah, man. I mean, I mean incredible. I, how do you how do you leave them off the list when you're talking about players? And I'm with Maiden, of course. You got the one consistent Dave Murray. But Dennis Stratton on the first record, and then you've had Adrian Smith ever since, and now you've got Yannick in there. Has been you know what since? Um, a while. Yeah, I mean it was, uh, it was that last album with Bruce. So name slipping me right now. But anyway, those guys are great. <coughs> and then KK Dow, KK Dallin, Glenn Tipton, Priest. Man, listen to listen to those, some some of those solos on that. Um, uh, listen to Painkiller, the solo on Painkiller. Yeah, yeah, that's God, crazy. that's insane. Not to mention the drum intro on that. I know we're not talking about drums, but yeah, and th- those are just some of the better dual guitar playing bands yeah. of all time. Um, you know, well, he's talking about. You know, I was, I remember, you know, being a kid listening to Maiden. You know, I was loved Dave Murray. You know, he had like this really fast legato style of playing. Um, you know, that just sounded really cool with their music. You know, and then of course. You know, Adrian Smith, you know, along like with the Killers records, uh, record and number and, um, you know, he was more of a bluesy style player where he wasn't quite as technically, um, I'm sure he's probably as technically proficient as Murray, but his playing style was different, you know, he more of a bluesy, more laid back kind of um, lead style than where Murray was, you know, a fast legato style. And, um, you know, and you can hear that, like I said, Oliver Killer's Number of the Beast, uh, Peace of Mind, you know, I mean, but yeah, those, when you talk about team guitar players or duos, yeah, they were probably one of my favorites. Well, I'm just going to throw out one that we talked about at lunch just because it's somebody that's not considered a, you know, a shredder or necessarily a virtuoso, but has a unique sound. That's Billy Duffy of the Cult. Yeah. Uh, talk to us a little bit, just kind of how important it is. I mean... You you know the cult when you hear him on the radio exactly. because of his tone and he has this very big sound. It's very melodic, but like we haven't talked really about tone uh, much. Like how important that is. I mean, that's just as important a lot of times as play is as your you know as the notes you're playing. 
Well, yeah, but you got to think, you know, too, you know, a lot of your tone comes from your fingers. I mean, um, you know, you could plug me or Chris into Billy Duffy's amp and give us his guitar and we're both going to sound completely different. You know, so, um, so, I mean, it's, you know, tone, I mean, it's a lot to do with, you know, the guitar, the, you know, are you playing a Strat style guitar with single coil pickups? Are you playing a Les Paul? It's got humbugging pickups. That's going to be a big difference in your tone. Are you playing a Marshall amp or are you playing a Fender amp? You know, that's going to be a big difference in tone. But what ultimately comes down to it is, you know, how you play, you know, your touch, you know, are you a heavy touch or, you know, like Sean was a very light touch player. You know, a lot of people didn't realize that because you listen to it and you say, man, it's not like his guitar is screaming, you know, but his touch when he actually uh, fretted the fingerboard, I mean, is very, very light touch, you know. Um, so tone, yeah, is it, huge. Um, Billy Duffy is his plan, you know, with the cold. I mean, it just, it was, it was kind of signature sort of, you know, I mean, it didn't really, um, you know, you could tell Billy was not trying to fit anything. He just wanted to play good guitar that fit, you know, great songs. And to me, that's what the cult was. And he wins the award for coolest looking stage presence. Yeah, no doubt. He kind of, you know, he, he kind of in a way there, I think he's, he reminds me in a way of Angus Young. In a way. Just that there's kind of a little bit more, I guess it may be a bad word to say simplistic, but it's a little, it's, it's more straightforward. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. you know, Angus Young, I mean, you know, he was another staple, you know, in guitar playing. And I mean, as far as, you know, a lot of people don't go back and say, you know, Angus, you know, changed the game. But there again, though, I mean, how many ACDCs are out there, you know, and how many Angus Youngs are out there? In one. And he know? has a unique sound. Exactly. Like he said, just, just like Billy Duffy, just, you know, the edge. You know, there's a guy with his own sound. I always said that Angus Young, for every dollar he makes, he should get 50 cents to Chuck Berry. Yeah, he should. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Really, I guess we're kind of the last one. I just, I, I think I'd, I'd hate to leave this guy out. And I know, I remember this was a guy that meant a lot to you too, would be as far as, Going to that early '90s, that Nuno Betancourt. Yeah, Nuno was. Um, I actually met him a couple times. Uh, Nuno's great guy, awesome. His playing is uh, awesome. I remember seeing him on the first tour, first Extreme tour, and they came to the Daisy in uh, Memphis, and uh, watching him play, man, and a very um, great technique, um, great phrasing, um, very very rhythmic player, um, and he just, uh, you know. Uh, you know, he's just awesome guitar player. Brought a funk element. Absolutely. You know, and that's why I say, you know, he's very a very rhythmic player in terms of even like his solos and things. I mean, you know, very rhythmic, you know. And I think the funk thing came out probably more on the Pornography, I think, the mm -hmm. second record. Um, Which probably helps him, helped him get the gig with Rihanna. Yeah, probably so. You know, I mean, and I'm sure he had that, you know, all along. The first record, I think, was probably more of a straight mainstream rock record, but... Um, you know, and then the playing he did on that, you know, and of course, pornography, you know, that covered a lot of ground, you know, from, you know, a lot of the rock tunes they had on there, the funk, you know, some soulful things on there, and then you got more than words. I mean, they covered a lot of yeah, areas. Sinatra sounding song on there. But yeah. <laughs> was that song. They covered a lot of ground with that record. So usually when Chris and I have somebody on here, we like to close it up with kind of a rapid fire, one word answer, first thing that comes to the top of your head. We kind of have the same, we haven't discussed we're going to do this, but you want to do it? Four, four. So, we, sure. we probably do this on the fly. Yeah, on the fly. Uh, just off the top of your head, one, two words. Favorite album of all time. Favorite album of all time, man. You're killing me. Um, 
I guess if I got to go with one, just give me Kiss Alive, man. I get two for one, right? Right. <laughs> if you could play in any band, and that may be, we may get a pattern here, but if you could play in any band. Uh, if I could play in any band, it probably wouldn't be Kiss, man, because I get sick of probably putting on the makeup every night. Yeah, you'd, um, you'd get tired of playing Ace. Yeah. Um, if I could play in any band. Um, I don't know, man. I think it'd probably been a lot of fun to play in Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah, I think it would. Go read the books. Yeah. <laughs> um, favorite concert you've ever seen? Kiss. Which tour? Um, nineteen seventy nine, the Dynasty tour. You saw that? Yeah, I was wow. real little. My, I, I don't know how I did it, but I convinced my my mom to take me. So you know. I don't really have anything else. One thing I would just ask you. This isn't like one word answer. Anybody's listening that may not, you know, they don't have quite the proficiency, whatever. And maybe there's some guys flying under the radar. Who would you recommend? The most? I, I give a two-parter. Some players maybe nobody's ever really heard of that they should check out. And number two, if you're just starting, anybody's listening, just starting playing guitar, who's somebody you think they should listen to? Well, first and foremost, I think you need to find the music that speaks to you. So, like, for you, you know, at that time it was Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. You know, and then obviously if you were big into Page, then, you know, you started studying on Page and finding like the things that he was interested in or the people that influenced him. And then you probably branched out and you started researching those people. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, that's the best way for people to do it. So, I mean, whatever music actually speaks to you, whatever, you know, whatever speaks to your heart and, you know, you say, man, I love this, you know, go and, you know, find what inspired them, what they learned from, who you know, who they looked up to, you know, and start researching them and, and, and go, you know, and start going back. I mean, that's how, you know, like I mentioned a couple times earlier today, we would have never heard of Django Reinhardt if we hadn't, you know, gone and, you know, looked at, you know, who Sean liked, you know, and started tracing it back, you know. And there's a lot of classical composers that we probably wouldn't listen to, you know, if they're, you know, who, who here at this table would have listened to Paganini's 24 Caprices if it wasn't for Yngwie? probably would have never heard of it so i mean it's it's important to if there's someone out there that you know that you admire that you're fond of you know go and find the things that inspired them the things that they um the things that cultivated them into being that the artist or the player that they are today you know and learn from that but don't and i can't stress this enough don't kind of tunnel vision things and go like only one direction you know, um, kind of, you know, I was thinking in terms, you know, about like today's show and, you know, a thought that had come to my mind was, you know, if I had five Desert Island guitar records, not five Desert Island records, but five Desert Island guitar records, what would they be? So I sat down and I thought about it and, um, you know, obviously Van Halen one, you know, Diary, you know, because you got Eddie and Randy. But then for me, you know, it would probably go off to like Michael Hedges' Aerial Boundaries, which is completely different. Um, you know, uh, just different things like that. So um, find like different styles of music, you know, that you like and learn from different styles. Classical, jazz. Um, some people may like country. You know, there's great players, you know, like Albert Lee, Johnny Highland, guys like that, you know, that Vince Gill, you know, I mean, Go and learn from as much as you can possibly learn from. And the things that you really like, I mean, you know, 
research them, look and, you know, see what it made those artists, cultivated them to be who they are, you know, and you will probably find that not only are the artists that you originally were inspired from, you're going to find something even cooler, you know, that they were into that's going to inspire you even more. Well, it's even with music that you like. I mean, finding what your heroes listen to is some of the best way to discover music. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have come up with so many great, great... Some of my favorite artists are heroes of the guys that I was listening to. And then I found out, that, I found out who their heroes are. I listened to it and, you know, I think that's a great path. Well, you know, and that's the beauty of music is that you're constantly learning. You know, I mean, there's a band that you might not know today you're going to hear about tomorrow. And you'll be calling Chris and saying, dude, I just heard about this band. You got to go check them out. You know, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, you're constantly always learning. And whether you're, it's a new band that's out that you never heard of before, or whether it was an artist from the 40s, 50s, or 60s that you might have missed, but, you know, you, you know, you've discovered because you're reading an interview with Mark Ford. You know, I mean, that's the beauty of that's it. That's how I got turned on to Little Feet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. So that's what, you know, you have to do that. I mean, that's the beauty of music is that you're always learning. It never stops. I mean, it's just, there's so much music in the world that has been there forever, you know? A great example, Neil Peart was 50 years old and taking drumming lessons from Buddy Rich. Yeah, exactly. You know, most people would say Neil Peart doesn't need any drumming lessons. No. You know, I guess that's what makes the great people great is they never, they don't get complacent. Well, I guess you got to think about this, whether it's, as a musician or it's in your professional life. You know, when you think about your professional life, nobody's ever going to be perfect. Some think they are, but you're not. Right. As long as you strive as if it's possible to be perfect, that's what's key. Know that, that know that strive as if you're going to be perfect, but, but know that you can't. Know that you're not perfect, but aim as if you can be. Well, I mean, that's the excitement. I mean, you're always discovering new things. You know what I mean? And that's, you know, that's just the great thing about music. Um, I've been turned on like to a lot of different styles of music, um, even lately, you know, just from friends that aren't even musicians, you know, that they put on Pandora and they listen to some station, you know, and all of a sudden I'll hear something come up, you know, that, you know, I would have never heard of this artist before, never heard any of their music before, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, wow, that's kind of cool. And now you don't have to pay for it. And now we've got Shazam, you know, so yeah. if you're in a bar and you hear something, that sounds really cool. You just pull out your Shazam app and find out who it is. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, and that's, don't ever lose that. You know, don't ever lose the fact that, you know, you can always discover new artists, new music, new things. I mean, that's, that's just the joy of it, man. I mean, it's just one of the things that makes life that much it's better. one of the things that helps us try to cling to our youth, too. You know? <laughs> cling to whatever. <laughs> well, um, or cling to our middle age. <laughs> Mike, we can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you uh, for having me, man. I, I've, was... I've learned a lot. Uh, maybe have you on some other time in, in the future. I would love um, to, man. My uh, pleasure. Really appreciate you taking time out of your out of your schedule to do this, and appreciate Chris for uh, setting it up. Um, if you when we post this, uh, why don't you uh, like on Facebook or Twitter? Just uh, leave us a message. Who your favorite guitar player is? We um, had some interesting choices. Uh, this morning that people put on Facebook, which uh, was very uh, an eclectic group, which is kind of how we like it. And so uh, it's like uh, Chris always says: if InSync's your thing, crank it. But don't roll down, yeah, I mean, but don't roll. tell people you listen to our podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. no, I do always say that, man. It, listen to whatever gets you. That's kind of what you're talking about, Mike. I mean, whatever whatever makes you happy. If, and that's why I always say this: if InSync makes you happy. 
play it and turn it to 10, you know, and love it, you know? That's just when you come into my house, you know, leave, leave it out in the car. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, thanks again to Mike. And uh, follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed, on uh, Facebook, Digital Killed, the Radio Star Podcast. And uh, subscribe via iTunes or uh, SoundCloud. And that's the easiest way for you to get our uh, podcast sent directly to your phone um, every time we release one. Uh, we'll probably be back next week. Uh, I've got an idea in mind for me and Chris. So um, we'll knock that one out next week. And uh, once again, thank you everybody for listening and have a good week.